Well, there's a very uh, old and well-known proverb that goes back at least 500 years, as far as I can tell, and it's been applied to numerous events, especially conflicts throughout history. The earliest possibly being uh, the defeat of Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth, in 1485. Oh, don't get distracted by the picture. It goes, it goes like, oh, it's the title, is it? Yes. It goes like this, this, this poem. Listen to it. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. You heard that song before? It's good, isn't it? The king has lost his horse in the mud in, in Bosworth, uh, eliciting the cry, maybe you know, as Shakespeare put it, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. And the proverb then became synonymous with the knock-on effect of things that are seemingly trivial being responsible through an unbroken chain of events for a major catastrophe. Today, we call something like that, we call it the butterfly effect. You heard that before? The butterfly effect. It's a phrase that's taken from a quote by the physicist Edward Lawrence, who observed uh, what a cataclysmic difference that tiny little pressure variations could make when he was computer modeling weather systems. He remarked this. He said, it's just as if a tiny atmospheric disturbance in Peking no greater than the beat of a butterfly's wing should a week or so later give rise to a Force 12 hurricane in New York. Interesting, isn't it? Those little things, like a pebble dropped into a pond, and the ripples come out. A nail, a butterfly, such tiny, undramatic, little banal things. Who would ever have thought they could make such a difference? And yet, that is so typical of what we've seen so far in the book of Judges, isn't it? You notice that? They're really ridiculous things. What is the means by which God works out his plans of rescue? What does he use to bring about his deliverance? It's not, you know, uh, intercontinental missiles, is it? It's all kinds of things that you would, you would overlook, actually. It's not the SAS or crack troops. It's a, it's a left-handed assassin. A bad smell, a locked door. That's amazing, isn't it? All of those things are necessary for the plot to work, aren't they? Or in a case of Shamgar at the end of chapter 3, we haven't had time really to look at, but, you know, a, a cattle prod, a farmer with a cattle prod. That's, that's all he uses, his weapon of choice. And today, as we read through this story, look at the ingredients in it. You've got a reluctant soldier, you've got a relocated tent... That's all essential to the plot. Some complicated sort of relationships and friendships going on in there. And a, and a, and a stay-at-home wife with a blanket, some warm milk, a tent peg, and a hammer. That's the ingredients, isn't it, of this story? And later in the book, we'll see God use basically a bad dream, a collective bad dream at night, and then 300 men with jars and torches and trumpets uh, to, to win a staggering victory. Or a lion's carcass and a, a donkey's jawbone, in the case of Samson. And Mark, it was a fresh jawbone. That's very important, apparently. You can't do it with a dry old one. It'll break, I suppose. But listen, here's the thing. 
These are the kinds of people and things that God delights to use in his rescues. Isn't that amazing? All of these things are instruments of his salvation. They're his instruments of salvation. Now, I doubt very much whether any of these men and women in this book really knew what their actions would achieve. You don't get the impression they do, do you? With most of them, I suspect the last thing that they were thinking about when they got out of bed on those days when God so mightily used them was, you know, ah, yes, today's the day I deliver Israel from their enemies. But everything, and and mark this in the book, everything was planned. God planned it all. God's hand was behind it all. Because he is the architect of salvation. He's the planner of rescue. It doesn't just happen haphazardly. You know, there's a school of thought uh, amongst even some professing Christians that says that God doesn't actually know the future. The future can't be known. And therefore, God cannot have absolute plans for the world. And that's nonsense. These people picture God like a master chess player who just can see so many moves ahead, he knows what to do in any circumstance. And, And by doing that, somehow creates the illusion of knowing the future by playing a few moves ahead. But that's not the God we encounter in the book of Judges or anywhere in the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. And what I want for you this evening is for you to grow in your confidence that God knows what he's doing. Whatever's happening in your life, God knows what he's doing. He's a a sovereign God, and we've got to understand what that word means. You might consider yourself, this is the interesting thing, you might consider yourself too small and insignificant to actually make a difference in what God is doing. But this is what the book of Judges is teaching us, isn't it? God calls you and me to be a critical, integral part of his plan. He's called us to do that in the New Testament repeatedly, hasn't he? Part of his big plan, his master plan. And so with that in mind, let's turn to this next episode in the book of Judges. Have a look with me down at chapter 4 and the first verse there. Let's read it. After Ehud died, remember Ehud with his, uh, with his stabby sword and King Eglon? After Ehud died, the Israelites again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. And because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. And so the scene is set, you see? But we've been here before, haven't we? (laughs) It's quite reminiscent, isn't it? You get the distinct impression that we're going to be here again before the book is out. Just like the human heart always has been and still is. You go round and round in circles, don't you? Israel, you remember, has just experienced an incredible deliverance from God under the hand of Ehud, the left-handed kingslayer. And uh, we're told at the end of that chapter, they enter a period of 80 years of peace, during which time, at some point, God also raises up the illustrious Shamgar we talked about earlier, who uh, took out 600 Philistines with what is essentially a cattle prod. I I don't even know what that looks like. It's at the end of chapter 3 there. Uh, As a side note, isn't it interesting with Philistines? I know there's maybe a theological point here. 
but Philistines don't die in small numbers, do they? <laughs> Philistines always seem to die in their hundreds, usually at the hands of one or two guys. Interesting. I'll have a think on that. But there was 80 years of peace for the nation, during which time things are going well, people are getting comfortable. We know how the story goes. As soon as Ehud passes on, as soon as the dirt is settled on his grave, the people turn back to their evil old ways once again. It's a realistic picture of our hearts, isn't it? And we've remarked on this before. Ehud is like that New Year's resolution. You know, you get an Ehud and you, you resolve, yep, we're going we're gonna to go the right way under Ehud. So on January the 2nd, it's all still fresh in your mind with your New Year's resolution. And you approach January the 2nd with all kinds of determination and resolve, don't you? A survey was done on this stuff, and I have to say it actually surprised me. Listen to this. 75% of resolutions, you know, New Year's resolutions, will be continued throughout the entire first week of January. <laughs> but only 46% will make it past six months, which actually is quite incredible. 39% of people in their 20s will achieve their resolution each year, whilst only 14% of people over 50 will achieve theirs. What does that tell us? Perhaps that only proves that as you get older, you become more honest when you're filling in surveys. I think that's probably what's going on there. Either way, resolutions don't last very long, do they? Trying to change your behavior and clean up your act will only get you so far. It might get you a little way, but not very far. What needs to change, and we keep seeing it in this book, is the heart all the time. The judges we read about in this book always seem to be only able to stem the tide of behavior for just a while, maybe a generation or so. I mean, you're, you're not going, you think about it, you're not going to step out of line when Shamgar is standing there with his cattle prod in his hand. When he's there, you behave yourself. Once he's gone, people's hearts just take them back into their same old sin. So the judges could deliver people from their enemies, but they couldn't rescue them from themselves. That's true, isn't it? Now, it could be that some of you here tonight, and that's your strategy. Your plan for being right with God, you still think that the plan is, grit my teeth, try my hardest. Well, can I point out the obvious? It's all over the book of Judges, and if you haven't got this, I don't know what else to say. It won't work. It won't work, that approach. You will find yourself constantly falling back into your old ways and old thoughts and old habits. And you know that's true, don't you? I know that's true. Am I the only person that does that? Even the best and most disciplined of us cannot sufficiently reform ourselves to meet God's exacting, perfect standards. So like the nation of Israel, our only hope is always going to be a rescuer, a rescuer. That's where you need to put your hope, not in yourself. Jesus went to the cross in an act, to, an act of rescue that can really save you and me. That's stunning, isn't it? So hear the warnings of this book and don't trust yourself, trust him. He's the only rescuer worth trusting. Well, back to Judges and back to this story, and as we see there in those first, first verses, with grinding inevitability, history repeats itself. And this time, God uses the Canaanite king, Jabin, and his commander, Sisera, 
to bring the people again to their knees. According to verse 3, it took 20 years. That's all. Just 20 years. And it took 900 iron chariots to finally make the people cry out to God once again in their distress. It's another recurring theme of the book of Judges, isn't it? We mustn't miss it. It's worth flagging up every time. When the nation of Israel decides to walk away from God in that sort of wholesale kind of way, and go after all kinds of other gods, God could just leave them to it. They, made a, they seem to make a pretty determined decision every time. God could just say, you want to go that way? Fair enough, I'm done with you. But in love, you see it over and again, don't you? God pursues them. And it's interesting the way he pursues them. It's unexpected, isn't it? He sends tragedies to pursue them. Calamities that they, that, that they, would, that they would wake up. You see it throughout the Old Testament, don't you? A calamity happens. A calamity happens. You're not supposed to say, oh, God, God, really, I hate God now. Now I really will turn away. Now the calamity, the tragedy is supposed to say, hey, wake up. Turn back to God. Something is wrong. It's the same with us, isn't it? We mustn't jump to the wrong conclusions when those sorts of crises come into our lives. C.S. Lewis astutely observed this, didn't he? He said, pain insists on being attended to. It's the great thing about pain, isn't it? Pain won't let up until you do something. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What, what is it that stops people from hearing God's voice? Well, it's pride, isn't it? It's self-reliance, it's comfort. All of those things just make people deaf to God. Like the nation of Israel, they'll listen they listen to that lullaby that's being sung by the world, full of other things to worship. Worship this, worship that. This will fulfill you. This will give you peace. This will give you satisfaction. And they listen, they tune into that, and they turn a deaf ear to God. They treat God like he's irrelevant. But God's calling voice will be heard, and it will be heard even if it takes 900 iron chariots to come trundling down the road towards you. Now, at some time during that 80-year period of peace, Deborah has been recognized, and she's been appointed as a judge. This God-fearing woman is used by the Lord to give leadership to the people, and she sets up her court, we're told, under a palm tree that gets called the Palm of Deborah. Did you notice? And she deals with the more difficult disputes that are happening amongst the people. So you bring your legal cases before Deborah, and she judges, and whatever decision judge, that Judge Deborah makes, you follow that. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever watched one of those daytime reality TV things like, uh, what is it, Judge Judy, I think, used to be on. I, I watched a few minutes of one of these at one time. Uh, really, these things are just kind of like, I don't know if you remember Oprah. Is Oprah still? I think there's still an Oprah Winfrey show. It's like Oprah, only slightly more extreme. So what you get in these scenarios here is, uh, families with embarrassing uh, dysfunctional relationships decide that what they would really like to do and what they think will help is to parade their own brand of crazy on daytime TV for all to see it. 
Uh, and they're hoping, as they go on to this, as they, as they appear before Judge Judy, they're hoping that the judge will support their side in the dispute. Now, I can't imagine how bad things would have to get before you would take your family on to a show like that. But Deborah ran what was probably a much more sane version of the same thing. Arguments, disputes are breaking out. You can't figure out what to do. You go before Deborah. Judge Deborah. And we're told also that she's a prophetess. Did you notice that? Uh, And that's important because one of the first things she does is bring a message from God. She's the one through whom God speaks to people, speaks to the nation. And so in the midst of the oppression, as the nation is crying out to God in their distress, we read in verse 6 about Deborah. It says this, She sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. Now, there's some debate had in the books about uh, Barak's response in verse 8. He responds by saying, well, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Is Barak being a bit of a wuss here. You know, I'll only go, Deborah, if you hold my hand all the way there. Or, as some authors think, is he actually declaring his dependence on the Lord? If you, Deborah, God's spokeswoman, if you don't come with me, then, then, then you know, I, I won't know what to do. I need God with me if I'm going to win a victory. Maybe. I'm not sure it's the latter. But it turns out it's not really the most important thing in the plot anyway, so don't get obsessed about that. Barak is told, though, that because of his approach, in verse 9, the victory will go to an unknown woman, and that is an important plot feature. So we've got the cast. You see the cast there? You've got the baddies, King Jabin, and his main man, his commander, Sisera, And they've got all of their iron chariots, 900 iron chariots. That's the baddies on that side. And then you've got the goodies. You've got Judge Deborah. You've got Barak, the commander. But there's still a very important character missing. So just when the story has got going, it's funny when you read it. Did you notice that? It starts to become a bit hard to follow because you get a change of scene in verse 11. It tells you now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim near Kedesh. Wait, we were just getting into the story, and suddenly uh, it seems very important to the plot to tell us that Heber's moved his tent. He can now be reached at the great tree, Zananim, near Kedesh. Uh, you get the little address cards coming out. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to know that he's moved his tent? Well, one, because according to verse 17, if you look, there's a friendly relationship between King Jabin, the bad king, and Heber's tribe, the Kenites. And two, because Heber's wife is the lovely Jael. So we've got all of our cast now. They're all laid up there in front of us. And Jael is the star player later on in the story. And we've got no reason to believe that Jael was anything other than a stay-at-home wife, the wife of a blacksmith, until one fatal day. It's a great story, 
uh, maybe you didn't pick up all the details. In actual fact, uh, chapter 5 is Deborah's song. We didn't read that, but we will look at some of the lines from that because Deborah's song actually colours in for us some of the details of what happened on that fateful day. But let's look at the story. So at Deborah's command, Barak and his 10,000 men swarm down Mount Tabor in verse 14. And we read, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots by the sword, causing Sisera to flee on foot. Now, what's happened there? Well, Barak is pursuing his prey, mowing down every one of Sisera's men as he goes in verse 16. And exhausted from the fight, or from the running, Sisera remembers, maybe reaches into his back pocket, he remembers he got that change of address card. See how the plot fits together? From Heber. And so he heads down to that tent, because he knows it's there, and he knows that there might be someone to give him some refuge from the pursuit. And as he approaches the tent, we read in verse 18, that Jael comes out to welcome him and to invite him in. Come, my lord, she says, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, covered him up. She tucks him into bed. Being the perfect hostess, J.L. tucks Sisera in bed, fetches him a nice warm cup of milk. It's really the red carpet treatment, isn't it? He instructs her, we're told, to keep watch at the tent, and then he drifts off into a contented slumber, weary from running and, and fighting all day. And it's at this point that things get a bit nasty in the story. J.L., we're told, grabs a mallet and a nice sturdy tent peg. She creeps over to where Sisera is sleeping. Now, I remember um, re the one time I took a life. <laughs> I was a teenager, uh, and our cat had savaged a bird. And the bird was beyond saving, in obvious pain. And so, as instructed by my mother, I went out armed with a loaded air rifle, and I did the deed. Now, I have to, you know, I'd like to say that I executed the deed like, uh, you know, like a, in a cowboy kind of way. You know, man's got to do what a man's got to do. I just shoot the, the bird. But in reality, all I could bring myself to do was to put the end of the air rifle on the bird's head and look away and pull the trigger. It is not easy to take a life, is it? Taking any life. I'd like to think that Jael did a similar thing eyes closed, teeth gritted, bang. But it reads like she did the job properly. She did the job like a cowboy. Verse 21, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. In fact, we'll, 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 let's have a look at Deborah's song. I mean, it is it's an incredible account here. This is how Deborah puts it. I, I love this. Most blessed, but sorry, chapter 5, verse 24, have a look. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. That's a good title, isn't it? He asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. 
Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At at her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. (laughs) So I'm sure it was more, more melodic than that when it was sung. But you get the idea. It's quite gratuitous. Her heroic act wins the day, doesn't it? With Sisera out of the way, with the iron chariots wiped out, it isn't long before Israel destroys King Jabin once and for all, and they're freed. It's quite an involved story. Lots of characters, lots of twists in the plot. But here's really the important question. Whose rescue is it, anyway? Did you see? Is it Deborah the judge? Is it Barak the commander? Is it Jael, the stay-at-home wife? Well, it's none, of course. The victory belongs to God. The rescue belongs to the Lord, the real saviour. Of all the heroes that we've read about, they all had their part to play in the story, didn't they? But they were merely instruments of his salvation. And that's the point that we need to get, I think, from this chapter this evening. Chapter 5, that song of Deborah. You know, we, we have songs like that in our culture today, don't we? The Scots seem to be particularly partial to singing about, you know, exploits that have happened and heroes that have happened. Well, what that story fills in some of the details of what happened that day. And it's worth looking at just a little bit of it. What actually happened that day at the foot of Mount Tabor? Well, we can see it, actually, as we read through that song. Let me highlight a few verses. Verse 4 of chapter 5. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. You see, you're getting a few details you didn't get in, the, in chapter 4. Or verse 20, from the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. This was a victory, according to Deborah, a victory that came from the heavens. The song colors it in, doesn't it? Verse, uh, it it colours in, actually, what we read in chapter 4, verse 15, if you look down. The Lord routed them. That's all we're told there. The Lord routed them. You're asking a question, what does that mean, he routed them with a sword? But it appears from the next chapter that some kind of flash flood swept them away. Their heavy, iron-clad chariots sunk into the mud, forcing them to abandon their tanks and flee on foot. Now, this story always sort of reminds me of the, the Battle of Agincourt. You know the Battle of Agincourt, where they get stuck in the mud? We took our children to, on a holiday to France, and we took them to the visitor center at Agincourt uh, after having you know, gone on about the story. You know, uh, we only, Henry with, was it only 300 men, and you know, all of this sort of stuff. And it's quite embarrassing to walk around a historic site like that in France with your children saying, is this where we killed all the French people? <laughs> But it all happened in this story. It all happened just like the Lord said through Deborah. God laid it all out beforehand in chapter 4. I will lure Sisera, chapter 4, verse 7, 
the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hand. It was the Lord who rescued his people. Barak and Jael, they just did the clean-up job at the end after God had already won the deliverance. Everyone had a part to play. And everyone who played a part became part of Deborah's song. They got to be in the songs around the campfire, enshrined in, in that folk legend from that day forth. They were heroes. But the real hero was the Lord. He was the sovereign planner, saying, I will give him into your hands. The Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. He, he called it out in detail for them. You know, there used to be, I've told you this before, it used to be an advert not too long ago, I think it was for the, for the British Army, showcased lo- all of those different jobs that you can do in the Army and in the armed forces. And then it asked, you know, who wants to be a little cog in a big machine? And then the punchline, of course, it depends on the machine. Royal Army sort of thing. It's a great punchline, isn't it? It depends on the machine. See, the best that any of these heroes in this book are is little cogs, small cogs in the big machine of God's salvation. Instruments with which he will do his sovereign bidding. Who wants to be part of, you know, who wants to be a small part in that plan? Well, I would say for one, I I do, don't you? I would want to be a small cog in God's plans of salvation. And what this story shows us is that while salvation is all God's work, he can use anyone. Not just that, but God, funnily enough, loves to use unusual and unexpected people as instruments of his salvation. Unexpected things. Think about the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, isn't it? Apostle Paul is a certified terrorist, isn't he? He's a hater of Christians. He's leading the movement against uh, the, the, the spread of the church. That's not your top candidate for a missionary, is it? If you were going to select someone and call them. But Jesus meets him, turns him around, and sends him blind into Damascus. God then calls Ananias, a local Christian, just an ordinary Christian in the town, to go and see Paul. And when he starts to point out the obvious issues, we read this in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. It's amazing, isn't it? That's my chosen instrument right there, that terrorist, the guy who hates you. So here's the challenge from these chapters, and it's a challenge to go, to go out from here and to be a small cog to be a small cog in the big machine of God's salvation. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what tools God puts into your hands, what abilities he's given you. Go into the world, starting here in Chesterfield. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go do it. You could be the guy in the office that invites and brings someone along to a Christianity Explored course. You could be the friend who turns a conversation around tomorrow and talks to them about Jesus. You could be the mum that, in, that, you know, that invites someone to read the Bible with her. No special qualifications are needed. Just a love of Jesus. Just a love for people and a willingness to act. That's all. 
Well, we've got a little bit of time. Let me end with a cautionary note here. It's my final little point in this talk about the blessing. I, th I find this quite challenging. Don't miss the blessing of getting involved in God's plans. And this comes out quite clearly in Deborah's song. So have a look with me at Deborah's song. Let's pick it up at uh, verse 15 there. Chapter 5, verse 15. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of hearts. Why did you stay amongst the campfires and, hear the and uh, to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of hearts. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Do you see what's actually being said there in that song? See, Deborah's song is a celebration of the victory, isn't it? It's a celebration of the Lord's salvation. Everyone who paid, played a part in it is celebrated in the song. The men of Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, you've got Deborah and Barak and Jael, the most blessed of tent-dwelling women. And in contrast, a curse falls on Meroz, a local city that did not send help. Those who refuse to be part of the Lord's salvation, which I hope no one here would ever do. But that's not to lay a guilt trip so much as to encourage you. You see, it's, it's a different tone that's used in those verses I just read to you, verses 15 to 18. It's, it's more of a, what a pity kind of tone. What a pity. While Issachar, Zebulon and Naphtali were going for glory, where were the rest of you? That's the tone you've got here in this song. Reuben, what happened? Just a lot of dithering and indecision. There was much searching of heart. Who's going to look after the flocks whilst we're away? You know, it's that, that kind of distractedness. And what about Gilead, says the song? Well, they were on the other side of the river. It would have taken extra effort. You know, surely, you know, there were others who were closer that could have got involved. Why should we get everyone across the river? What about Dan and Asher? Well, they were busy trading, apparently. Uh, you know, making profit on the ships, getting ahead. You don't want to miss a good deal while you're away, you know, dealing with the enemy. So many excuses, and they miss their chance to get involved. And the glory goes to those who stepped up and got into the battle. Don't miss the blessing. There is much to do in God's kingdom, isn't there? Much to do for every single one of us. Don't miss the blessing of getting, getting involved. Time is short. The gospel must go out to the ends of the earth. And you might be a lowly nail. You might think you've got no more impact on anything than the flapping of the wings of a butterfly. But let me ask you this as we close. Isn't that just the sort of candidate that God is looking for? I think it is.